Hello, hello. Welcome back to Loki's Library. And if you are new here, welcome. I am your librarian, Katrina. This is where I am reading through the enormous library books that you see behind me. And then I give you a quick synopsis and tell you what I think about them. So if you like books, just aren't sure what to read next, hit that subscribe button, like and share my videos, and let me know what you think in the comments. This week we are continuing our studies on the sort of sociopath that thinks socialism is a fine idea with the Claws of the Dragon, Kang Shang, the evil genius behind Mao and his legacy of terror in People's China by John Byron and Robert Pack. Mm -hmm. The accompanying cocktail is called Red Dragon, is two ounces of cognac, three quarter ounce lemon juice, three quarter ounce simple syrup, a quarter teaspoon of Chinese five spice powder, and four dashes of Peychaud's bitters. So let's do this. Kitty, did you want to be in my lap today? Come here, Miss Hiss. Okay. This is, this is Aurora, a.k.a. Miss Hiss. She is the old lady of the house. She hates everybody except for me and my husband. And she has arthritis in her tail, so she hisses a lot. So, Kang Shang was born in Zhengzhong Ki on November 4th, 1898 in Shandong province. He was actually born to a landed family, uh, one of those landowners that would later be persecuted for you know, owning land, like how dare they? But that uh, wealthy family background and upbringing allowed Zhang a, a comfortable lifestyle growing up. And he was given a classical Chinese education, which like in, in is actually not that different from a, a classical education in America where you might study philosophy and, you know, law, uh, very similar. All right, he studied philosophy and law. He also studied art. Uh, he was not a bad painter at all, actually, and was a master calligrapher by the time he died. I, I mean, just uh, his calligraphy is so beautiful. Even, like, when people know who it came from, they, they kind of hate it, but they can't bring themselves to destroy it because it's still a masterpiece of, of, art, of artistry, essentially. He was, in addition to his training in Chinese philosophy, he was trained in Chinese history. So he knew a lot about where the country came from. None of that changes the horror that he inflicted on China, like his artistry and, and uh, love of history. And he did love history, like no, unquestionably. Uh, none of that changes the horror that he inflicted in China, on China. And therein, of course, lies the true story. So Kang, having been born basically literally the time of the collapse of the last Chinese empress, I think he was about 10 years old when the, when the empire officially collapsed. No, what the hell is that? It was basically a time of uncertainty to grow up, which is similar to today, right? There's a whole lot of uncertainty going on that, that people just don't know anything about. Kind of eyeball this. I also have to eyeball the lemon juice because, well, first off, I'm using bottled lemon instead of fresh because I didn't get to the store yet. So this time of uncertainty, it, it more or less did not directly impact his home in Shandong. But as he was growing up, he, he, as the collapse happened and that uncertainty grew, he basically joined street gangs in Shandong. That was a lot quicker than squeezing my own lemons, I will say that. His father, ultimately, well, ultimately one of his like true blue friends in the street gangs talked to his father and said, hey, why don't you send him to boarding school with me? Which his father wasn't too sure on at first, but ultimately consented to. And so he got his first introduction to uh, Germany, essentially, because it was a German boarding school he went to. So he, he spent several years learning at this German boarding school, got a, an intro to like European history. All of that was great. That all worked very well for him. But he still didn't know quite who he was, was still looking for an identity, was still kind of a bit of, of a straggler. And so when he returned from boarding school, his parents uh, put him into an arranged marriage, which he had no part of, but was not uncommon, especially not for a member of landed gentry 
fact, uh, like that was a really common occurrence to be to, to have a, an arranged marriage back then. I'm assuming it's a quarter teaspoon. It actually didn't say how much. It just said a quarter, five star. And I was like, I don't think I mean like an actual quarter of this should be, you know, the the five. Was it five spice? Chinese five spice? I just kind of guessed. So he, he got his arranged marriage. He had two children with his wife, ultimately abandoned his family. All of them. Not just his wife, not just his two kids, but his parents, siblings, spouse, everybody. He, he didn't talk to any of them for almost the rest of his life, I think. Once he went to, once he went to um, Shanghai, he abandoned everybody. Stopped talking to them. And that's also when he began the process of changing his name. Now, that's actually not that uncommon in China, as the authors explain it, uh, at least not for the children of landed persons, to, to change their names at various stages in their life, kind of a, a recognition of what they're becoming. Okay, that, that's a Chinese custom and, cult, and part of their culture. It would not be until 1933 that he settled on the name Kang Shang, but he went through several iterations from his birth name up until then, until he settled on Kang Shang and stayed there for the rest of his life. He did teach for a bit at a local school, which is where he met his uh, uh, student and protege, Zhang Qing. I hope I, I am mispronouncing names. I am quite sure I am mispronouncing names. I will try and include the spellings up above here so you guys can look them up. Don't go off of my pronunciations, and I am truly sorry for the mispronunciations. Let me shake this up. I'm supposed to garnish with star anise. I don't have star anise, and I don't like anise, so I'm just going to not garnish it. It has a pretty color has an interesting smell. Now, when he was in Shanghai, he moved to Shanghai in 1924. He studied for a bit at the university, or Shanghai University, and it was here that he joined the Communist Party almost as a founding member. Uh, the CCP, or Chinese Communist Party, would be founded in 1921 in Shanghai by Mao Zedong and 12 other radicals. So he was there almost right at the beginning. Which puppy's having a nightmare? Who's whining? But he began, once he joined them, he, he began climbing the ranks. He, he ultimately became the first spy master of the CCP in Shanghai in the 1920s when the original spy master was, I believe, arrested. I think he was arrested. So he, he, that position fell to uh, Shang Kang. Kang Shang, excuse me. Hmm. That's not bad. It's a shame I like that cocktail. He's such a bastard, but it's a pretty good one. Now, the 1920s in Shanghai was, I mean, okay, it was insane globally, right? I mean, there was a lot of weird shit happening in America, too. But in Shanghai, it was very political. Um, in America, we had, you know, crime lords burgeoning. You had Al Capone and the mafia. They had their rise. In Shanghai, you had the fate of the Chinese empire basically going on. Was, was that the fate of the Chinese Empire fell between two sides. You had the power struggle between the CCP on one side and the Kuomintang KMT on the other, which was the rival political party. And that one was run by Chiang Kai-shek. Now, the dispute between these two parties would run for nearly 30 years. Um, it, it ran from literally the time that the empress died, the old empress died, and the empire officially collapsed until 1949, when the KMT would withdraw to Taiwan and Chiang Kai-shek would rule there until he died. Um, so you had a very long span of time that was essentially just political anarchy in the country with these two sides fighting over who would be in charge. And most of the fighting was behind the scenes as they each tried to outmaneuver each other. 
politically, they would call brief truces uh, in their fight during the 1930s and 1940s uh, for World War II. Uh, basically, the truce started in 1937 when Japan invaded Nanking and became known as the Rape of Nanking. And the Asian continents, uh, that was basically the Asian continent's first salvo into World War II. And the feud would stay at a deadlock until 1946 when, you know, uh, victory in Japan was ultimately declared, at least for the World War II part, and then a China itself would devolve into a, a open warfare, essentially open civil war for three more years. Ultimately, 1949, Chiang Kai-shek withdrew the KMT to Taiwan, where he would rule with military law. So it's not like it was all peachy keen and roses in Taiwan. It, it was under military law until like 1989, so 40 years under military law, which yeah, America would be really pissed about that. I mean, we we were pissed about two weeks, you know, <laughs> 40 years would just be pretty much unheard of. It was hard to say who won there, right? Now, KMT is not the topic of this book, so let's, let's keep going. Let's focus on Kang. In 1933, Kang went to Moscow, where he would spend several years under the direct tutelage of Stalin. I mean, like... He got there right during Stalin's purges and the famines that he implemented in Ukraine, and Kang was there learning at the master's knees. And he spent ultimately five years in Moscow, returning to China right before Beria made his appearance in Moscow. And there, there's no indication that the two ever met, but Kang was flattered when people would compare him to Beria. So, I mean, take that information for what you will. Now, he returned to China to the CCP, which was basically encamped at Yan'an, and they had been more or less routed there by the KMT. He missed what became known infamously as the Long March, which was a like solid bonding experience between the Chinese communists who made it. And it was during the Long March that Mao rose to be the ultimate person in power of the C CCP and th th became the chairman Mao. Uh, he missed all of that, which did cause some hmm, hiccups in his career, I guess you could say. But his good works in Shanghai in the 1920s and the work that he did in, St in uh, uh, Moscow was recognized. And so he was again put in charge of the, it was very charmingly named, but it wasn't so charming, the Social Affairs Department, which was Secret Service spy versus spy shit. Now, what was not immediately known, at least not to the communists in China, although it may have been known to Mao, is that when he was in Moscow, like I said, he was learning right at the master's knee, and there the essentially the, the Chinese communist people who were living in Moscow were gutted with him constantly pointing the finger at that person's spy to that person's spy. That person's a bad person. They should definitely be in one of your gulags. And so he was responsible for seeing a significant chunk of the Chinese Communist Party in Moscow locked up in gulags. And basically they were just people he didn't like or that he viewed as political rivals or rivals for his own power. Because that's the kind of guy he was. When he returned to China to the CCP, which was encamped at Yunnan, they had been more or less routed by the KMT at that point and forced into this kind of backwards warren. First, when Nanking was attacked by the Japanese during the duration of World War II, and the two sides agreed to that ceasefire, which just meant they were no longer openly fighting against each other, but they still each kept their own party members, their own political council, until after World War II, when they went head-to-head -head with the KMT withdrawing, CCP rose to the top. And... The fact and, and the allegation of having worked with KMT basically ever in the past ever would be a charge that Kang would lever against his greatest political foes in later years. Now, in 1938, he managed to emplace his greatest asset in Mao's household, which was the actress Jiang Qing. Jiang Qing. Uh, 
Kang had met Chang way back when he was teaching, and there is speculation that they may have been lovers, but nothing was ever proven. Uh, what is known is that he swore before the CCP that while she had had contact with KMT officials, she was a loyal communist, and this cleared the way for her to become Mao's fourth wife. And his long is lasting. I mean, they, they were basically married until he died. Um, but having been placed there by Kang, he was essentially her patron, and when he had anything that he wanted Mao to know, he would tell Jiang, she would tell Mao, and this way, like courtiers of empires past, Kang was able to control Mao, or at least get his earworms going in Mao's ear, and Mao would take that information as he wanted. Um, I don't know that he actually controlled, I don't think anybody actually controlled Mao. I do think Mao was very much his own person and the guy in charge. I think he was the reason he was in charge is he was the master political strategist, but Kang was a real close second fiddle. While the communists were entrenched at Yunnan, Kang being placed in charge of the social affairs department, he opened up this lovely thing. He established the trial office, and having come fresh from his lessons that he learned at Stalin's own court, so 1938, straight back, while we're technically at a ceasefire with KMT, they still have, you know, double agents to root out, and so Kang enacted the following on suspected traitors, uh, the bamboo cut, which is where they put the bamboo spikes driven under the fingernails. I feel like most people have probably heard of that one. Passing the horse hair through the eye. This is when a hair from a horse's tail is inserted into the penis, which sounds horrifying. Passing through a woman. Water from a narrow hose is pumped into the vagina at great pressure. Giving the guest a drink. A large quantity of vinegar is forced down the throat. This makes one throw up, vinegar being an anemic. And after the first retching, the pain becomes excruciating. I mean, basically, you're throwing up bile, which is highly acidic, past an acid burn. So you're just puking blood in no time. The bean pulley, where the victim is suspended by his arms and lashed with leather thongs. Pressing incense. This one's lovely. A prisoner is suspended from the rafter by his arms. And then a smoldering piece of incense is applied to his armpit. That's some tender shit right there. Pulling down the road. Prisoner is bound and tied to a horse's tail, then dragged to his death as the horse is whipped. It's charming. And assisting production, where a prisoner just, you know, digs his own grave and is buried alive. Uh, those are just some of the more well-known things that he did. And they had, you know, charging, charming names like pressing the incense or giving the guest a drink. Kang would have a prisoner stand on one leg for three days without sleep or imprison them in a cell that was not big enough to stand upright in or big enough to lay down in for a month or more. This would leave a prisoner permanently disabled as the muscles would atrophy in different ways. Um, at least 20 million Chinese were imprisoned or sent to labor camps during the CCP takeover of China during these years. That's only three years, right? 46 to 49, 20 million. And it only gets worse for China from there. Kang's power as spy master lasted until the end of the Chinese Civil War. Once the KMT withdrew to uh, Taiwan, Kang was basically shuffled off to be in charge of farming, which he resented. He saw that as a demotion. And he actually went into a sort of retirement claiming that he was ill. And, and he was off the political scene from 49 to 56. And that's one of the more interesting aspects of Kang's character, because having been born to a wealthy family and educated with that classical Chinese nobleman's education, he was aware of the history of courtiers in China, and he knew that when a courtier fell out of favor, historically he would withdraw for medical reasons until the time to re-enter court arrived. And so Kang was ill for about six years, waiting for his time to re-emerge and claim his place with Mao's court again. 
and he determined through communication with Jiang Qing that his time was 1956. And two things happened in 1956 that, that made him determine this. First, we had Mao planning his Great Leap Forward, which was due to start in 1958. And the other thing that prompted his return to society was Khrushchev's secret speech, which denounced Stalinism. Remember, Kang was Stalin's most apt pupil. He sat at the master's knee, and he took great offense when Khrushchev repudiated all that Stalin had accomplished. And Kang knew that if he did not return to Mao's side now, Mao might easily be persuaded to follow Khrushchev's lead by some other courtier, most likely Zhao Enlai. Now, I'm not going to spend too much time on the tragedy of the Great Leap Forward. That was discussed quite, quite a lot in this book, right? Um, I mean, Mao's Great Famine was uh, horrifying in its own right. I don't need to rehash it now. I'm going to have to rehash the Cultural Revolution eventually, but right now we're discussing Kang's part in it. Now, Kang was very much up to his spy master tricks during the Great Leap Forward, making sure that any of the party cadre that disagreed with the way forward was persecuted into silence. And when the movement spectacularly failed in that estimated 45 million deaths, he worked his magic to make sure that none of the blame fell directly on Mao. And when he continued to claw, and then he basically just continued to claw his way back up through the party ranks, from which he had fallen so spectacularly during his medical respite. Respite. I mean, he was when he went into medical retirement, he was like number five or six in the party ranks, and when he went down, he was like you know twenty to thirty somewhere in there. So you know, he was out of the top twenty, and he didn't he didn't like that, so he started clawing his way back up, and he spent. Let's see, the Cultural Revolution, or no, I'm sorry, the uh, Great Leap Forward was like 58 to early 60. And then, of course, it was recognized to have failed horribly. And he starts trolling the college campuses, basically looking for his next way forward. And in, I think it was 64, 62, 63, somewhere in there, Mao starts talking about his Cultural Revolution. Because Mao is still looking for a way to erase the Great Leap Forward, right? I mean, he's managed to push off the blame onto other people, that it must be bad implementation, bad policy, but he's still looking to erase it from the people's memory, and so he comes up with the Cultural Revolution. And Kang was there, ready, willing, and able to help, laying the groundwork by building up the Red Guard on the university campuses across China. Now, the maxim that is often repeated by those who frankly are profoundly ignorant of history is that those who do not study history are condemned to repeat it and, and they often say this while pointing to the horrors inflicted on humanity by fascism and, and okay that is a fair point we all know fascism sucks the horrors of the holocaust have been well studied and well taught and documented in schools the world over the horrors of communism not so much and this is where the flip side of the above maxim comes in those who have studied history are condemned to watch while those who are ignorant of history repeat it. Things that Kang implemented during the Cultural Revolution, starting in 1964, two full years before the official start of the Cultural Revolution, students at university started doing self-criticism, that lovely thing where they all sit down and tell their classmates about the things they've done wrong that were against party doctrine. And they would struggle each other, explaining how and where they went wrong. They would struggle their instructors, making them wear dunce caps and run through campus. And, I mean, that's really, really similar to what's been going down on campuses here, right? Or corporate training, when they have people explain all the ways they've been prejudiced in the past. I mean, for, for more on that, I'm just going to refer you back to James Lindsay, because he's gone over that a lot in his New, New Discourses podcast. 
But all of this primed the students for the first actions of the Cultural Revolution, and the first violence of the Cultural Revolution happened on June 18, 1966. And that's when student Ni Yuanzi, who was backed by Kang and his spouse uh, Cao Yu, Ni Yuanzi organized a struggle section to criticize and humiliate senior members of the university administration. Those are those headlines, right? That's what they tried to do to, to Brett Weinstein. That's how they got the college, the, the, the professor at Harvard University forced to resign, things like that. More and more students are protesting over the dumbest things. Now, prior to the Cultural Revolution, Mao had had a pretty firm policy about not persecuting other members of the party, particularly senior party members. And that rule went right out the window. And Kang was essentially given carte blanche to persecute anybody that he could get away with. And it wasn't long before these student protests began bleeding over to the public. Uh, Kang plotted behind the scenes, maneuvering the useful idiots on college campuses into doing his legwork and persecuting the intellectuals who might fight back against his regime. So I have a couple of direct quotes from the book here. Uh, quote, Vast numbers of young Red Guards disrupted the daily life of Peking and eventually the country at large. Originally conceived as a force of shock troops whose ardor and sheer numbers reflected the chairman's charisma, the Red Guards ran barbarically out of control and started terrorizing every corner of the land. The young men and women who made up their ranks were intoxicated with Mao and oblivious to opposition. Remorselessly, they began attacking the mandarins and professors and factory managers whom Kang and his fellow radicals singled out as symbols of revisionism and bureaucratic oppression. Uh, revisionism in context of the Cultural Revolution means the rejection of Stalinism. Uh, there is a reason I have said that the left has pushed the center so hard that as far as the left is concerned, anyone who disavows Mao is a right-wing extremist. Now, the next quote I wanted to, to go over is, quote, once the call to destroy Mao's enemies went out, groups of self-styled rebels sprang up inside schools, universities, and factories throughout China. Accusing their superiors of belonging to black gangs or other reactionary organizations, the protesters dragged them from their homes and offices, ridiculed them at mock trials, paraded them through the streets, and sometimes even beat them before packing them off to the countryside to plant rice or shovel manure. Almost every Chinese somehow set apart from the masses was a potential target. A college education, a brother or cousin abroad, a middle class lifestyle before the communist victory. If you were membership in a church or religious organization, a supervisory post in a school or factory or shop, any of these could mark ordinary folk as class enemies. So the two passages that I just read were on pages 308 and 309 respectively. I mean, those two pages alone, absolutely horrifying. They, they literally leapt out at me because they are eerily similar to what's going on today, right? Sounds like BLM, sounds like Antifa. And no matter what your family history is now, no matter how poor or broke you are, no matter if you were somebody who stepped off the boat after the Civil War doesn't matter, right? If you are white, you are guilty. In 1960s China, if you came from a middle-class family, you were guilty, except for Kang, of course. His own family history never impeded him from ultimately rising to the number three position in China behind Mao 
and Mao's one-time heir apparent, Lin Bao. Lin Bao was actually named as Mao's successor. Mao, Mao did not have Stalin's fear of having a successor, uh, but Lin began making political mistakes that had him falling out of favor in like 1970, like late 1970, early 71. Up until he began making those mistakes, Kang did everything he could to bolster Lin as the heir, supporting Lin. When Lin began making his errors, Kang began withdrawing his tacit support. And Lin ultimately authored a failed assassination attempt against Mao, and when the attempt failed, died in a plane crash trying to flee the country. Now this created a problem for Mao, which Kang was all too happy to step in and solve with his Red Guard and propaganda. See, Mao, as chairman, was infallible. But if his heir apparent had attempted to assassinate him, then that did make him fallible because that's a mistake. Um, that can't be allowed to stand. Mao didn't make mistakes. Mao never made mistakes. He was perfection incarnate. Kang jump-started his propaganda machine to try and undo the damage of having had Lin as the next in line and to distance Mao himself from having named Lin as his successor. I mean, America knew about Lin's death as, as early as November of 1971. China was not notified until 1973, so a full two years after he died. And that allowed Kang time to reverse the propaganda that had propped Lin up for decades as the heir apparent. Now, Kang died of cancer on December 16th, 1975. And, I mean, it was a painful cancer, at least. He, he had a lifelong habit of smoking opium, a, a habit for which other Chinese were imprisoned. Uh, he got away with it because he was Kang. None of it helped him because basically he had a really high tolerance for opium after a lifetime of smoking it. So I'm pretty sure he was in pain. At least God, I hope he was in pain. Couldn't have happened to a nicer man. Ironically, as is true of many communists, Kang had been an avowed atheist most of his life up until it became quite obvious that the end was near when he found some of that old-time religion and started having the state-sanctioned Buddhist priest, the you know, one priest who was allowed to practice just to show how tolerant the CCP was of religion, come to visit him quite frequently. He was uh, particularly interested in reincarnation. Like, I mean, dude, you are going to reincarnate as a fucking tapeworm. I would not be too excited about that prospect if I were you. Somebody shit you out their ass a long time ago and it couldn't happen to a nicer bug. Initially, he was granted a large funeral and placed in a national memorial. Nowhere near as Mao's next heir apparent, which was Zhao Enlai. Uh, Zhao, unfortunately, died not too long after Kang, uh, like, like three or four months. And Zhao was genuinely adored by the people. Unfortunately, he also predeceased Mao. Zhao's funeral was massive and spontaneously attended by hundreds of thousands who recognized that he was the head of the moderate communists. Uh, the, the ones who had halted Mao's great leap forward when it came to when it became ob apparent that the failure was very real. Kang's removal from the annals of Chinese communism came about after Mao's death. Uh, Kang's one-time protege, Zhang Qing, attempted to usurp power with three compatriots and was jailed for the attempt. Now, the Gang of Four was tried, and many of Kang's misdeeds were publicly stated. I, I, I don't want to say that I initially had written in here that they came out, but people do. People were well aware. They they called him like the like the angel of death or, or the Chinese equivalent of it. I tagged it out and I couldn't find the tag in all of the notes that I have in here. But he it was known that he was behind all of these things. But 
they were publicly named for the first time. And those who had had Kang's art hanging on their wall started removing it. Kang's family quietly had his ashes removed from the National Memorial. I think the only one of his family members who escaped the condemnation was his daughter because he had not had contact with her in more than 50 years. She worked at a tobacco factory and retired from there. And basically her... Her anonymity was in the fact that her father gave not two shits about his daughter, and that worked to her advantage because she managed to live. Uh, everyone else was ultimately persecuted. Uh, now, Zheng Qing and her relationship on Kang, she, she was Kang's longest protege, being his pupil for better than 40 years. By the 1970s, she was no longer technically Mao's wife. I mean, legally she was, but Mao had found another lover, and Zheng graciously stepped aside, basically leaving the field, but staying on as a counselor to Mao. But she no longer quite had Mao's ear the way she had during Kang's long climb to power. And when Kang tried to position Jiang as the next successor following Lin Bao's betrayal, Kang was rebuked by Mao. And Kang, seeing the political winds change once again, did what he always did. He saved his own neck by throwing Jiang under the bus and bringing up the fact that in the 1930s, she had in fact been part of the KMT the thing that he swore had not happened. But, and here's the fun thing, one of the many privileges that he allowed himself in addition to raiding the art houses and having, you know, all this classical art stored in his own house and having, you know, for plays that had been labeled as lewd and rude and not good for the public, he had those privately performed for him. Among the other things he did during the Cultural Revolution is he had the Red Guard go out and find every scrap of paper that he could from his own time in Shanghai in the 20s and Yan'an in the 1930s, and he purged his own record. Because ultimately that's what communism is, right? Always choose to save yourself, hate the man who is better off than you, and always save yourself first. Uh, this book was a very telling look at how the Communist Party rose up in China. It carefully laid out Mao's complicity and approval of Kang's methods and told a tale of duplicity and industrialized mass murder. And not quite in the detail that Frank the Cotter's book did, which is why I'm going to have to read The Cultural Revolution and the book he wrote on the Chinese uh, Civil War as well. So those I have those to look forward to next year. Remember, kids, guns don't kill people, governments do. And uh, that's it for this week. If you liked what you saw, don't forget to hit subscribe, and I will see you guys next Sunday.